Welcome to the Davidson Day Community Podcast. My name is Pete Moore, Head of School at Davidson Day. Each episode, you will meet different members of our supportive and diverse community. You'll hear fascinating stories from parents, board members, alumni, and the wonderful people who work at Davidson Day. In this episode of the Davidson Day Community Podcast, I'm joined by Steve McGill. Steve began teaching upper school English at Davidson Day in 2015 and soon became a beloved member of our school community. In 2020, Steve was instrumental in forming our school's Student Diversity Council, where he has empowered our students to make positive change at Davidson Day and beyond. Steve is also a successful hurdling coach and a published author. So, Steve, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. The first question I have is, where did you grow up and where did you go to school? I grew up in Pennsylvania, southeastern Pennsylvania, born in Philadelphia. And then right before I turned three, my family moved out to a small town in the western suburbs called Glen Mills. And I went to predominantly Catholic schools when I was there. So I heard that you overcame a challenging situation as a young person. Can you share what happened to you and what you learned in the process? Well, I was 17 years old, a senior in high school, when I was diagnosed with a rare blood disease called aplastic anemia. It's characterized by bone marrow failure, so your bone marrow stops reproducing blood cells, so you gradually just run out of blood. In my case, it probably started during my junior year. I just didn't know it. I was experiencing symptoms. I was getting tired all the time. I was a hurdler on the track team, and I would always get tired in workouts and in races. I was getting tired sooner and sooner. And so long story short, I thought I was out of shape, tried to get in better shape. Over the summer, I tried to get in shape. It was getting worse. Wow. (laughs) And so finally, in October of my senior year, I went to my dad's doctor and got a blood test done. And that's where we found out that my blood counts were super low. I had to go to from the local hospital to Children's Hospital in Philadelphia because they were the only hospital in the area that could treat what I had. So it was a life-threatening situation. Wow. Prognosis was less than 50% for survival. They were supposed to give me a bone marrow transplant, but then none of my family members were compatible donors. So they had to go to what was at the time a very experimental treatment, which involved intravenously feeding me horse serum (laughs) twice a day for eight days for four hours at a time. Somehow this horse serum is supposed to reactivate the bone marrow. In my case, it worked. (laughs) So I missed five weeks of school. I was able to get back to school. I was able to get back to the track team and everything. I was later told by my doctor that if I had waited another two weeks before going to the hospital, I would have just fallen and down and died. Oh, my God. Wow. What was that news like getting at that age? You think you're just out of shape and suddenly you're hearing that you have a life-threatening illness. It was not the reaction you expect. I was more worried about not being able to run hurdles again than I was about dying. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I guess maybe that's part of being 17 and never having been seriously ill before. But I didn't know what aplastic anemia was either. Mm-hmm. So if you said leukemia, I'd have been like bawling in the, in the spot. But aplastic anemia, is like, what is that? So I was able to, to delude myself into thinking, well, it's, it's not that bad, right? Yeah. 
until the treatment started and side effects from the treatment, then I was like, all right, this could be it. And were you in the hospital for all those eight days or you had to sort of come and go? How did the treatment unfold? Yeah, I was in a hospital for three weeks total. Okay, wow. November 1st to right before Thanksgiving, November of 1983. I was in the hospital for about a week before the treatment started. Before then, they were just giving me blood transfusions and stuff like that. And then the treatment, and then another three or four days after the treatment ended. So I was in the hospital for three weeks. And it was a life-changing experience in, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. In what ways? Well, 17 years old, you're faced with your mortality. You don't have the same perspective as anybody else anymore. (laughs) In a way, I never did, but that experience really concretized it. The things that my peers focus on aren't really what matter to me, (laughs) you know? And then just the fact that so many people in the hospital were so kind to me, my doctors and my nurses saved my life emotionally as well as physically. Yeah. They kept me from giving up. And so... That was a life-changing moment in that regard. Like I always said, I want to be able to be, for others, the kind of person that my doctors and nurses were for me when I was totally helpless. I could not help myself. That's incredibly powerful. And so it was early November. So when were you able to start running again? Was it after the five weeks of getting back to school or you had to then just work up to that? It was crazy. Before I got in the hospital, I could not jog a lap around the track without having to stop. The first time I tried to run after I got back home, I could run two laps. Okay. <laughs> so I was so excited. First thing I did when I got home from that two laps was call my coach. And I was like, coach, I'm back. I'm back. <laughs> you know? uh, wow. You said like how much hurdling meant to you. Like how old were you when you started hurdling? I was a sophomore in high school. Okay. My family was a basketball family. All my older siblings played basketball. And I played basketball, and I saw a world record race on video, uh-huh. <laughs> VHS, yeah. in my, my coach's office. And I was like, Coach, I want to learn how to do that. And so I started my sophomore year, and it just captured my imagination. It was just so much fun, and it was so challenging while being so much fun. I was like, where has this been all my life? This is it for me. I found my thing. <laughs> And what was it about it that really just captured you? Like that it's a pretty remarkable thing to experience that. Yeah. It was a combination of rhythm and speed and balance and poetry and art and competition, all that kind of stuff mixed together. For me, the challenge of the mind-body continuum, the body has to be able to perform the motions and execute the motions put itself in these positions to get over these obstacles cleanly and efficiently. Mm-hmm. And the mind has to do the thinking part to figure out <laughs> yeah. as we're going. So for me, as the mind and body work together, it's like every workout, I feel like I've just discovered new territory. It was just so enjoyable. It seems very, I guess, sort of meditative in a way that you have to be so focused at that moment, like you can't be thinking about other things because there's just so much happening. Like there has to be so much rhythm and sync. And you've once mentioned to me that hurdling was a mind, body, spirit experience. Can you dive into that a little bit more? Like, what do you mean by that? The mind, body part I just talked about, but the spirit part is the abstract part. I kind of have a theory 
about life in general, that everything begins in the concrete and rises to the level of the spiritual. So if you're a basketball player and you're shooting jump shots, that's a very physical activity with technique and form you have to perfect. But in the process of it, as you do it so often, it becomes your life. It becomes a lens through which you view the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And for me, though I don't hurdle anymore, it's still the lens through which I view the world. I was talking to one of my colleagues who was stressing out about all of the the work and the grading. And I told her the same thing my high school coach told me when I was running my first race. Don't worry about all the hurdles. Clear the one in front of you. Nice. You know, yeah. You know, so those life lessons that I learned stay with me, even though I don't actually physically hurdle anymore. And yeah. the spiritual dimension, it's just an idea that when the body and mind are in tune with each other, that is a spiritual experience. You know, they're not fighting each other. When the body's listening to what the mind says and the, and the mind's giving it good cues, good advice, and they're working together, that's a spiritual experience. Like, how's practice? All I can say, it was, it was good. You can't explain that feeling of going over a hurdle. You can't put that into words. It's poetry. Yeah. I've just recently started learning how to scull with an organization called Lake Norman Sculling. They have boats here just actually on the north end of our campus. And I've only had two on-water lessons and one in indoors. But what I really like about it is you have to be so focused. Like it is that sort of mind-body experience. Like at the moment you get distracted, because the margins are so thin, I imagine similar to hurdling, like you flip your oar the wrong way and the whole thing just goes wrong and it catapulted me out of the boat. I have to think so much about it because if I don't, the whole thing goes awry. But there have been those microscopic moments where it's all been good for like 10 seconds. Like, oh, this is what they're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I, I haven't read it, but I understand that you wrote a book called A Hurdler's Hurdler. Yeah. <laughs> the Life of R- Rodney Milbourne, Olympic Champion. Yeah. What led you to the subject besides your love of hurdling? Well, I started the project around 2005. And I finished it about 2009. I just couldn't find a publisher forever. Okay. But, but uh, Rodney Milburn was an Olympic champion in 1972 in the high hurdles. I was only six years old at the time, so I don't really remember him. But a lot of the hurdles that I grew up admiring admired him. And so I remember reading about Milburn dying tragically at age 47 in a very awful accident at his workplace. He worked in a paper mill. And he was checking the temperature gauges or something, and he fell into a scalding vat of chemicals that was used to make the paper. And so I'm like, this guy was an Olympic champion, and he was 47 years old, and he died this horrible death. Like, I'm looking on Amazon and whatnot for a biography of him, and I can't find anything. I'm like, why is there no book about Rodney Milburn? I have my own own website dedicated to hurdling knowledge and training and whatnot. So I was writing articles for that website all the time. And so I was like, let me, let me see if I can do this. <laughs> you know, There's not a book out there about him. Let me see if I can do one. So yeah. I, I called down to his hometown in Louisiana. They have a museum that had a, a display of his medals and uniform and stuff that he wore at the Olympic Games. They said they would contact the family for me. Family said, yeah, great idea. We, we want this to happen. And I kind of took it from there. So I was writing during my planning periods and stuff when I was teaching, interviewed a lot of people who who knew him, who ran against him, who coached him, family members, put the book together and had a lot of help with editing and got it done. And finding a publisher was a whole different story, though. <laughs> and so when was it published? 
So it was published in 2018. So okay. nine years after I finished it. Two reasons. One was commercial publishers want an author they're already familiar with or a topic they know will sell. Mm-hmm. You know, the commercial publishers will go for that. So I sent my uh, letters out and sample chapters out, and I got several res- positive responses. But they all said, uh, sorry, who's Rodney Milburn? <laughs> you know, we love your writing. We love your research. Very engaging story. But who is this guy? So, <laughs> you know, I, had a, I was teaching full time. So I was like, let me just move this to the side and get on with my life. And I posted some of the chapters on my website. And then somebody saw it there and told me about an a academic publishing company called McFarland in Western North Carolina. So I emailed them. And then, lo and behold, they emailed me back. We're interested. I'm like, what? Oh, that's great. <laughs> and the rest is history. So it got published in 2018, and I'm proud of it. So what did you learn about yourself in the process of writing the book? Yeah, good question. I learned that I have the power to persevere. Writing a book during planning periods is, takes dedication. I also learned that I had some fear to overcome because when I did get a, a yes from a publisher, I was scared. They said, we like your sample chapter, send us some more and we'll make a decision. And it took me like a month to send them the rest because the fear of rejection, the fear of getting this close to be told, well, we decided to go in a different direction. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I kind of like learned is go ahead and put myself out there and not be afraid of what I want to happen not happening. So that was a very real fear that I didn't know I even had until that moment came. Yeah. You said it took a while for you to actually send it off. Do you remember the moment that you sort of overcame your fear and said, well, I'm feeling the fear, but I'm going to do it anyway? I know it was a day off from teaching and because I was at Davidson Day at this point. So I was just like, well, Steve, they like it. They want to publish it. What are you waiting for? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So I kind of had like a one-on-one <laughs> session with myself. Yeah. And I was like, "All right, let's do it." It's a great story. When I was at college, I had this poster on my wall. It was of a surfer looking into this massive wave, and it said, "Face your fears, live your dreams." And there's been a number of times since that moment where I've been really scared about something, whether it's professionally or personally, and that will run through my head, like, "Face your fears, live your dreams." And you're in the process of writing a new book. What's this one about? Yeah, it's a continuation in a way, another biography about another hurdler. This one is alive still. His name is Ronaldo Nehemiah. He was the greatest hurler in the world for a four-year stretch. Okay. 1978 to 1981. He broke the world record three times <laughs> to basically introduce a whole new era. He's in his 60s now. Currently, he's a track and field agent. He represents Justin Gatlin as his most oh, famous. Oh, wow. I had interviewed Ronaldo for the book about Milburn because he had run against Milburn towards the beginning of his career, towards the end of Milburn's career. So when I finished the Milburn book and I got it published, I'm like, well, I like writing biographies. I want to do another one. Who do I want to write about? And he was one of the first names that came to mind. So I contacted him and he was like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> so I'm about two chapters away from being finished the first draft. Oh, wow. And what's the experience been like writing about someone who's alive rather than someone who's passed away? 
Good question. It's a lot different. It's a lot more work. I'll say that. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> because things are ongoing. There's still things happening. Yeah, yeah. And with the first book, I couldn't interview the subject himself. So everything mm-hmm. I was relying on was from secondhand accounts, interview-wise, and the newspaper articles and whatnot, magazine articles. But with this one, I can interview him, which I did at one spring break when I first started the book. I visited him at his home and interview him for like three days in a row. And since then, we email back and forth, we text back and forth. It's funny because the thing about writing about a living person is you find out that memory is not reliable. (laughs) So many things that I'm told that he tells me, I have to fact check. The general gist might be right, but the details are wrong. When you write a biography, you got to have your facts straight. I guess it does make sense. If you said, like, what was the sequence of these events 20, 30 years ago? You'd be like, oh, well, I think that's what happened. And then once you sort of decide that that's the sequence, you probably get pretty fixated on it, that that is it. (laughs) That's funny. So shifting gears a little bit, I'd like to just talk about your time at Davidson Day and you are a very large part of the fabric of Davidson Day. What are some of the things that you most like about working here? People I work with and, and the kids. That's a simple answer. I haven't always been at places where I like the people I work with. Egos can get in the way and whose class is the hardest or most challenging and all that kind of nonsense strips away the purity of the profession. I haven't encountered that here at all. It's a very, I got your back, you got my back kind of faculty. And when it comes to the students, I would need two hands and more to name the amount of students who have impacted my life as much yeah. as I've impacted theirs. I have grown as a person through the relationships I've had with my students. And I think that a school like this, that's definitely one of the positives to the small size. You can really become a real impactful part of someone's life and they become a real impactful part of yours as a result. And that leads beautifully into my next question is like, we talk a lot about meaningful connections. It's one of our school values and you establish strong connections with your students. Are there different things that you do to create these connections? (laughs) That's a good question because if I'm being totally honest, I don't consciously do anything. Okay, (laughs) I'm just being myself in the classroom, in the hallway, whatever. My whole philosophy, if you will, is treat them as maturely as they allow you to. Mm. One of my favorite novels is is called The Idiot by Fyodor Dostoevsky, the Russian novelist. And The Idiot is a translation, more means like the outsider, the stranger, ill person, because the main character has epilepsy. There's a line in that that novel where, where the main character says, never withhold knowledge from children for fear that they won't understand. Children understand everything. That was a very powerful line that stayed with me, and it has profoundly affected the way I teach. You know, I don't teach my students as kids. I teach them as adults in progress, if you will. Yeah. Maybe that's what works. And I try to be engaging. I try to let my sense of humor come out and stuff like that. (laughs) But it's a line there, you know, sometimes I ask myself, is this me acting? Is this me playing a role or is this who I really am? In that regard, I always try to make sure that if I'm not feeling it, I'm not going to pretend that I'm feeling it. If I'm feeling grumpy, I'm going to be grumpy. I'm not going to take it out on anybody, but I'm not going to pretend 
I'm not going to put on a show because people need me, so to speak. I think mm-hmm. it's more important that people see that I can have a bad day. I can get angry. I can feel frustrated. I can doubt myself. So I try to keep it 100% in terms of how I'm feeling all the time, while at the same time being aware that people do rely on me and people do look at my class as the one where they can be themselves. So I try to stay cognizant of that as, as well. Yeah, I was speaking to one of the parents of one of your former students, and they were talking about just how impactful that you were on their kid. They didn't particularly love writing, but they just loved Steve and his class. And they sort of grew to love the subject as a result. If I got it correctly, you said you treat them as maturely as they allow you to be. Can you say that part again? Sorry, I missed. Yeah, I'll treat them as maturely as they allow me to. And how did that sort of approach evolve? Is that something that like very early on in your teaching career that you you had down or just as you've become a more experienced teacher that's evolved it's from day one. It okay. started in high school, if I can tell a mini story. Yeah, mate. A compared contrast between my basketball coaches when I was playing basketball to my track coaches when I quit basketball to run track in my junior year of high school. When I was on a basketball team, I always felt like I was being talked down to. Mm-hmm. When I was on a track team, I felt like I was being talked to like a co-traveler on a journey. Yeah. <laughs> And I remember when I quit basketball, a lot of people were saying, what is he doing? Why are you doing this? Like, your whole family play, you're good. And I remember this one teacher who said, hey, you're 17 years old. You can make your own decisions now. Yeah. So I look back on that and I say to myself, yeah, it was the teachers and the coaches who respected my individuality, who respected my maturity, who were the ones who really enabled me to thrive and find things within myself I wouldn't have found otherwise. Yeah. And so that's what carried over. It started before I ever started teaching, really. Yeah. Something else you said was around that that you're learning from others, right? And they've impacted you. We often talk about fellow adults that way who have an impact. But it's so true that when you are working with kids, there's certain ones you just look at them like, you've been alive before. Like, this is not your first <laughs> you know, trip around yeah. the, the universe. Like, you're just so wise. And they'll ask you questions about yourself or probing things and you just start to think about the world in a different way. I've heard you say that on a few different occasions and it's so true. But sometimes when you're the adult, it's like you can get the impression from some people like, well, I've got this nailed down and I don't have to learn anything. And what what does a 17, 16, 14-year-old have to teach me? But then when you realize like, there's something to be learned from everyone. It's yeah. really powerful. Like I've, I've had this really great experience at the moment. I'm teaching my first ever high school class with Mark Palmer doing this entrepreneurial class. And the highest I've ever taught before was sixth grade and they're all seniors. And I just love it because I'm learning so much from them through their enthusiasm and experience and the way that they see the world. They ask challenging questions. So how do you teach writing in the upper school? What are your methods of instruction and how do you get adolescents to tell their stories? Good question. I was a writing tutor in my senior year of college and my two years in graduate school, going for my master's. So my writing tutor assistantship, I spent about four, maybe six hours a day helping students one-on-one with their essays. That was before I ever started teaching, before I ever had my own classroom. Mm-hmm. So that was my foundation. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So for me, as a teacher, it only made sense to find as much one-on-one time as I could <laughs> to work with students in their writing. Because 
these students all had teachers, but they're still coming to the tutorial center for help. Okay. Why was that? Because the teacher can't cover everything in the classroom. So I basically approached teaching and writing the way I, I approached it when I was a writing tutor. We're going to go sentence by sentence. We're going to go line by line. We're going to find every weak verb, and we're going to circle it, and we're going to find every example of redundancy, whether it's of word choice or of making the same point over again, and we're going to circle it. We're going to figure out a way to, to phrase this more effectively. And technology-wise, I would say Google Docs has been a game changer for me because before it would have to be a one-on-one -on -one discussion face-to-face. -face. Now, I, with Google Docs, I can comment and give editing suggestions without actually meeting the student face-to-face -face, so I can actually be more hands-on in a one-on-one -on -one format without being with the student in person. So that's mm -hmm. been very helpful, too, in recent years. My wife is a published poet, and her father was a writer, her grandfather's a writer, and many of the books that I've read that she's recommended are written by authors about their writing process, whether it's Julia Cameron with The Ride to Write or The Vein of Gold or Annie Lamont with Bird by Bird. And more recently for Christmas, I bought her Stephen King's book about his writing process. And what they all talk about, it seems, writing is a process and good writing is rewriting. And it's rare that anyone write something first draft and it's perfect, right? So often you hear young people, adults say, I'm not a good writer, <laughs> right? I, and it just has in my mind of the years of like reading these things, seeing my wife's process is that good writing is rewriting. How do you help young people overcome that? Because it could be quite solidified by the time they get to you that I'm not a good writer. How do you help them overcome that? beat them over the heads with the idea that that's not true. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like, if you keep hearing that, that you're not a bad writer, that there are skills you can develop, eventually you're going to start to believe in. It gives you concrete examples to show you. Okay? Mm -hmm. So let's say you have 17 comma errors. All right. So if you learn this one basic rule of when and when not to put a comma, you'll have 17 less errors in your paper. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I always take a practical, logical approach Emotions can get in the way of progress, and I found that in my teaching and coaching and everything, because writing, I mean, let's be honest, there's some people who just have a better yeah. affinity for it than others, just like there's some people who can just pick up an instrument and start playing it. But at the same time, to use that musical analogy, some who might not be able to pick up an instrument and start playing it, if they're willing to put in the grind of it, can improve a lot more than they would have thought starting out having no clue. Yeah. I was pointed to quote that Alex Haley, the great author of Roots, said, find the good and praise it. Mm. If the student's doing nine things wrong, point out the one thing they're doing right. Yeah. That'll be, that'll be our starting point. Find the good and praise it. I love that. I've heard a phrase a different way when I was teaching elementary school is like, catch the kids being good especially the ones who are often like calling out and like rolling under the floor and not yeah. doing things is like the moment they put their hand up for the first time in two weeks, you're like, thanks for putting your hand up. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Cause it's very easy to, if you're in a classroom, even if it's 30 kids, right? 40 kids, you compare your writing ability to the best writer in the class. You compare your musical ability to the best musician, your athletic ability to the best athlete. But what you don't see is, the hundreds, thousands of hours that they've put in 
potentially like you might have a kid who's a very gifted writer but also they love to do it and they do it a lot and they're constantly writing and improving and getting feedback and so it's very easy to sort of compare ourselves to that i remember realizing man if i want to learn something and i put in the work then eventually i mightn't be steven spielberg right but i can learn about filmmaking or if i want to learn to play an instrument but it's hard though because we often compare ourselves to someone who's like grinded so much i remember Someone said to Yo-Yo Ma, something along the lines of, I would give my life to play like you. And he said, I have given my yes, life to play like this. Exactly. <laughs> Last year, you were instrumental in forming the Student Diversity Council. How did that group come about and how did it evolve over the year? It came about in the best way possible, organically. Uh (laughs) Two students led the way, Jaden Graham and Sidney Brown, both who graduated last year. And primarily it was Jaden's energy. She kind of inspired me when she emailed the faculty end of her junior year school year saying, what can we do? to raise awareness in our community. And like when a student takes initiative like that, you gotta help, <laughs> you yeah. know? You gotta put your hands in the clay, so to speak, <laughs> you know, like a Potter analogy. She and I in Sydney came up with the idea of the diversity forums. And so we so, said, well, we don't have well, any kind of diversity club, let's start one. And so it was really those two. And then Catherine Nikolic, another senior from last year. Catherine was a third senior who really helped to shape it and make it a thing, so to speak. And we had a lot of students sign up, and it went pretty well. It was hard figuring out how we're going to be consistent month by month with it. So we were able uh-huh. to get things done, but nothing on a scale of our imaginations <laughs> when we started. So now with our current leaders, Cameron Baker and Lexi Justice, they have a very good idea of how to get people involved in a month-to-month basis and project-by-project basis. So... You know, they're doing a great job of keeping the vision of Jaden and Sydney going. And you've done a tremendous amount of work, and thank you for that, on our diversity forums. There might be some people listening who are new to our community or who haven't ever attended. Do you mind just giving a broad overview of one? Yeah. So to me, the word diversity includes everybody. Everybody's unique in their own way. Yeah. And you could put it another way. Everybody has a struggle that is unique to them or to a group that they belong to. And so the forums were an idea of mine inspired by Michael Smith's alumni forums. (laughs) Like every January when alumni are in town, he'll have them come and speak about what it's like to be in college and what students in high school, you know, should be looking out for. Michael set those up where it's kind of a question answer kind of deal. So I wanted to kind of just mimic that. So I brought the idea to Jaden. She was like, yeah, let's do it. And so it kind of evolved differently where we have a panel of people who, who have already you know, prepared what they're going to say or already have a good idea of what they're going to say, and they kind of take turns. And so we've done the African-American experience, the Jewish experience, Asian-American experience, LGBTQ+, non-traditional families. This year we did disabilities, learning disabilities, and physical disabilities was our first one. And Cameron and Lexi have a whole list for the rest of this year. So what I like about them is that it gives people who don't always have a voice, mm-hmm. a voice. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're here to learn from you. We want to hear your story. We're not here to tell you 
how you should feel, <laughs> you know, tell us how you feel. Mm-hmm. So I like it when people that you don't hear from a lot, even some that you do, you learn more about them in ways that you didn't know them before. You know, yeah. I love the educational aspect of it, sitting back and listening to other people tell their stories mm-hmm. is to me just a fascinating thing in any aspect of life. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. The amount that I've learned has been phenomenal. And when I went into this, I was thinking, oh, this will be a really good experience. You know, I've worked in schools a long time. I feel like I'm pretty aware. But each time it just, I learned so much and I, I become much more appreciative of the struggles of others. And even one of our former students was talking about her experience over the last few years with a physical disability. And she said, it's made me much more in tune with other people's potential struggles. Each forum gives me a few things I take away and go, oh yeah, I just need to be more just aware of that. Like in my lived experience, I don't have to deal with that or experience that, but just realizing that, oh yeah, someone's bringing that to the table. And just an example, which we all know divorced kids, my parents are divorced. It's very easy to overlook that potential experience. And I remember just one of the kids said, what happens from when I go from one parent to the other is that each time it's like going to a hotel, like it takes you a day or two to to acclimatize and feel comfortable. And I've taught many divorced kids over time. And it's something that I I felt bad about that I just had never really taken into consideration that just how hard it can be potentially for them to restart. And that's just one example of many, but it was something that I was like, man, I've just been overlooking this. And so this sort of leads into the final question I have about this is they are really powerful. And I've like got off probably every one of those calls and just gone, wow, like that's just been a really peak experience, right? And just feel more connected to people. Like, why do you think they're so meaningful for those involved? This is a theory I have. When people are given a chance to be real, they will embrace it. (laughs) Because we have to be fake so much in our lives, you know? We have to give people a side of ourselves. We have to give people a little bit of ourselves. We have to water ourselves down. There's always some internal compromise taking place. And one-on-one conversation leaves you feeling like, like you're walking on air. Yeah. <laughs> my whole thing is creating space. Yes. Metaphorically, you know, my job as coordinator of the forums, my job is to create space. So if you're Ava Smith and you've dealt with chronic illness, and I know the plot line of your story, we're going to have a forum where, you, where I can really learn more about your story. It's about trust, you know, when mm-hmm. people feel that they're being listened to, they'll speak. That's why I don't worry about a topic being too difficult or too awkward. To me, honesty and realness are so liberating. Yeah. You know, anybody who is given an opportunity to express themselves in a way where they know their voice is being heard, they're going to take advantage of that. And for us on the other side, as listeners to these stories, it's just wonderful to see our students as human beings. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like this is a kid in my class, but she's so much more than that. that when Jessica Hallman was speaking last year about her non traditional family, I was just so moved as someone who I just gotten to know because she was new to school last year. Mm-hmm. And I was so moved by how articulate she was on an intellectual level and on an emotional level. It's like, yeah, that was a powerful experience for me. 
not just as a proud teacher or something, but as another human being who was enriched yeah. by another person's story. I've had so many moments in that where age melts away. You know, it's very easy to say like, oh, they're too young. They don't have a story to tell or what could they know? What insights could they have? They might be 16, 17 in their college or early alums. But then when you step back and you turn off any preconceived notions and you just listen to the message, you're like, man, this could be an 80-year-old person who's like lived a life and has this wisdom and they're just handing it to me during our last forum was just that over and over again, I was like, how old are these people? And probably the, the oldest we had was maybe 23. And I just was over and over again, just thinking, man, the wisdom that I'm getting. And so thank you for all you do to facilitate that, right? And just allowing people to have that space that they can come to this public forum and there's X amount of people on the call, many of them that they don't know, and that they come with this trust because you've facilitated and said, hey, like this is a good place to do it. So if anyone who hasn't tuned in before, keep your eye out for the calendar and sign up and, and listen. And we always welcome people sort of being involved. The next thing I'd like to do is finish out this with some rapid fire questions. What is your favorite piece of literature to teach and why? Yeah, I got several candidates. I can't name them all. So Great. I'll pick one. And if you were to ask me the same question a different day, I might pick another one. But for today, I'll say The Stranger by Albert Camus. For those who don't know, Camus was a 20th century novelist who was as much a philosopher as much as he was a novelist. And so a lot of heavy philosophy in his works. And The Stranger's a very short book. It's maybe 120 pages. Paperback. Okay. It was written post-World War II. So it's written in, in the mental depression that a post-war world will have, questioning what is this ex existence all about? Why are we here? How are we supposed to interact with this world? And the reason I like that book so much to teach is because it brings so much out of the students in terms of, it's a book that's, that you can easily relate to yourself. You might not be like the main character, but we all have those moments where we feel that life is pointless, that we don't have anything that we can say is the reason for our existence. And most of the time we kind of avoid those dark feelings because they can bring us into a dark hole. But that book shows us that we kind of have to face those feelings because there's a light on the other side. <laughs> you know, if you keep going, you'll find answers that if they're not universal, at least they work for you. Camus in general is one of my favorite authors because I love authors who, who philosophize. I mentioned Dostoevsky before. He's another one. I love authors who are asking the big questions while telling stories. Our lives are not small, so if we're only asking small questions, how much money am I going to make? <laughs> you know, we're not really getting the point of what this life is really all about. That's awesome. And what are some things you love doing in your free time? Jigsaw puzzles. <laughs> yes, in your classroom. Yes. Yeah. If you've been in my classroom, you'll see, you'll see a lot of them on the wall. It's funny because I used to, used to do jigsaw puzzles as a kid because it's a kid's thing. And then I stopped because I grew up. And then I grew up even more and said, why did I stop? <laughs> You know, because I enjoy it. It's very yeah. meditative and very engaging. You know, you, just like athletics, it requires a level of focus. And it's, you're putting things together. 
I love that part of it. Recently, one of the athletes that I used to coach when I lived in Raleigh, she just won a silver medal at the Olympic Games. And so I did a puzzle at school of her going over a hurdle, and my students helped me, and it was cool, and I, and I put it on the wall in my classroom. But then I did another puzzle of her teammate slash roommate hugging her after the race. And she always talks about how she and this girl are best friends. I was like, oh, I got to do this one. So <laughs> I took the photo, uploaded it to the website, and they sent it back to me as a puzzle, finished the puzzle, and then I mailed it to her. And <laughs> she texted me when she got it. She's like, best gift ever. Ah, uh, and what website do you use? It's such a great gift. It's called puzzlesprint.com. And once I found them, I never do generic puzzles anymore. I always okay. upload photos and personalize it because it's a cool way to tell someone you appreciate them. Mm-hmm. You know, you're making a puzzle, you're putting it together. That is cool. I, I, it's Australia's greatest ever export. I think is Hugh Jackman, right? Who's a, the actor, yeah, yeah, dancer, yeah. singer. Yeah. And I, I love him, right? He's just such a genuine guy. And I heard an interview with him recently on the Tim Ferriss show. And and he asked him a similar question, like, what do you like doing in your free time? And he said the same thing, puzzles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, especially if he's doing like a live performance or something, that's what he'll do. He'll go back to his room and he'll do a puzzle or he'll do it with his family. And he started doing the same thing, was getting them printed and like favorite locations. Or I was like, oh man, like if Hugh does a puzzle, I should do a puzzle. <laughs> like, and so I've been, I've been thinking about it. So that's why I wanted to get the website, but uh, that's super cool. Yeah, I can share it with yeah. you. Yeah, and if you could, learn a new skill, what would it be and why? Yeah, I, I got a couple ideas. Well, the first thing that jumps to my mind when I hear that question is saxophone, tenor saxophone, because one of my biggest heroes and role models is John Coltrane, the jazz saxophonist from the 1950s and 60s. You look at a saxophone, you just look at it, and then you hear him playing. <laughs> it's like, how does he get all of that out of that? That's you know? funny, yeah. <laughs> and... To me, it would be cool just to be able to breathe air into it and get sound out of it, <laughs> you yeah. know, and maybe play a simple tune. So that's probably number one. Buy a cheap saxophone and in my twilight years, try to teach myself how to play. Other thing I'd be interested in is photography. Whenever I'm in Laura Wood's room, always looking at the walls and the way photographers look at space, you know, getting back to that space yeah. again, and their relationship with reality too, because... If you click that button one second later, you might miss the moment you were looking for. So that's something I could see myself getting into. Yeah, we're so lucky to have Laura as a teacher here. And I've got on my wall a number of photos that our kids have taken in her class. I just think these are high school kids creating these images. Like it's remarkable. And in the last five years, what new belief, behavior or habit has most improved your life? That's a deep one. (laughs) Generally, I don't think in terms of five-year peers and stuff like that. I would say this. I've recently gotten in the habit within, I guess around 2019 it started, of looking at myself in the mirror at least once a day and reminding myself I won't be in this body forever. In June of 2019, my mother passed away. She was 89 years old. Oh, I'm sorry. And I had convinced myself she would never die. And so it broke my heart. You know, I lost the one person I most wanted to be proud of me. And that really messed me up. And then later that summer, we lost our head of school at a Balcom. Yeah. And then in January of 2020, a few months later, Kobe Bryant got in a helicopter accident 
and his daughter and 10 other people fell to their deaths. And then right after that was COVID. And so, you know, at my age, mid fifties, you start realizing, you know, Lada was younger than I was or same age I was at the time. You start realizing that this body is temporary and you got to face that fact. By doing that, by looking at myself in the mirror, knowing that as reality, that I won't be in this body forever, how am I going to face this day? What am I going to prioritize? I was talking to Linda Flynn, our new English teacher I share a classroom with, and I was saying to her, you know, end of the day, the day is over. I'm not carrying yesterday into tomorrow, Mm. bringing baggage with me into the next day, because when I'm dead and gone, that's not going to matter. But the love that I passed on and the inspiration that I passed on, that'll live within everybody whose life I touched. Winning some battle or proving myself over somebody or being important in this world in some superficial way, can't take that with me. But the other stuff, the the love, the inspiration, that'll never die. So, What a beautiful way of looking at such tragic situations. Like it's very easy to get caught up in our day-to-day and not realize what a gift life is. So yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. What advice would you give someone wanting to pursue a similar career as yours, whether that be in sports coaching, in teaching, in writing? It all goes together, really, especially teaching and coaching. The cynic in me says, don't do it. (laughs) 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 Don't go down this road. It doesn't pay well. (laughs) But the fact of the matter is it does pay very well. It pays enough that you can make a living and it pays inwardly in ways that you can't measure. So my advice would be, you need to love your subject matter, but you need to love the kids that you teach even more. And love is not a corny word there. Love means you'll put up with them, you're patient with them. When you're on the brink of giving up on them, you don't. You have to have that level of all-in-ness because teaching is a very emotionally exhausting profession. You're giving your lives to these kids. And when my daughter was She's grown now, but when she was a student going through the ranks, lower school, middle school, upper school, I can honestly say I saw the students I taught more than I saw her. Because it's not just the classroom. It is going to pervade all aspects of your life. Yeah. Whether you choose for it to do so or not. So you got to be ready for that. As an English teacher, not to sound arrogant, but I think that that's an even higher calling. That's been my experience in the sense that we cannot avoid being a part of their lives because we're going to encounter their stories in the essays that they write. And they're going to trust us to read those, not just to grade those, but to read those. And sometimes they'll choose topics that are very personal because they trust you. And so as an English teacher, I would say there is an element of personal investment that you kind of have to be ready for. So if you want to be an English teacher, you really have to have a humanitarian element to your personality because it's going to come up. Yeah. Wow. Well said, mate. And the final one I have is what inspires you? I can give a one-word answer that will open up. Creativity inspires me. People who are creative inspire me. People who, who aren't looking at what's being done, but are looking for new ways to do things that haven't been mm. done. People who are willing to fall flat on their face and fail. Like I tell my hurdlers, never err on the side of caution. (laughs) Okay. Mm -hmm. Like Noel Freeland says, if you're going to make a mistake, make sure it's a big mistake. I love people who are in pursuit of 
excellence in a creative manner, not in a what is the model I'm trying to copy, but more so, I don't know how good I can be, so every day I'm going to find out. That's why I like John Coltrane's music so much, because there's plenty of it that I don't get, (laughs) you know, but I don't need to get it. It's the spirit of it. What I learned from listening to John Coltrane is there are no limits to how far you're allowed to go. Keep trying. If you have an idea that might not work, try it anyway. And so for me, those kinds of examples inspire me to bring out the best in my creative side. You know, Kobe Bryant once said, there's no such thing as failure. It wasn't long before he passed when he said that. And he lived it, (laughs) you know, he played that way. Those are kind of people I want to align myself with, you know. Well, Steve, I can't thank you enough for all your time this afternoon, but more broadly, I just can't thank you enough for all you do for our school, all the support you give our students, and on a personal level, how great it's been working closely with you this last year on the diversity forums and getting to know you as a person. And so thanks for all you do. Appreciate it, Steve. It's been great on my end too. So right back at you. You've been listening to the Davidson Day School Community Podcast, which is hosted by Pete Moore, head of school at Davidson Day. The podcast is recorded on campus in the heart of the Lake Norman area. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear them. Email your thoughts to podcasts at davidsonday.org. That's podcasts at davidsonday.org.